We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, our weekly radio show and podcast aired across the country, bringing you big ideas from our small island of Tasmania. This week, we'll be talking about science, but more specifically, talking about physics and things that I'm really uncomfortable with. So I'm looking forward to this episode because it's always good to branch out to things that I know nothing about. So I hope you're welcomed onto this journey, listeners, and feeling as uncomfortable as I am. So my name is Dr. Neve Chapman. I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Smith, and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording, the Palawa and Pakana people as we record on Luchuita. And I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where you're listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay respects to elders past and present. So we're talking more things space, Ryan, which um, makes me feel pretty uncomfortable and concerned because I don't know very much about it, but I also love the passion that people hold for this. So can you tell us a little bit more about what we're talking about today. Yeah, so today, Neve, we're continuing with part two of our mini-series that we're doing in celebration of the James Webb Space Telescope, the uh, images that I'm sure all of you have been seeing recently on social media and things. And today our guest is Georgia Stewart. She's a PhD candidate in the area of theoretical astrophysics at UTAS, and her overarching goal is to better understand the life cycles of the most active and powerful galaxies. She's a self-described lover of all things space, plants, and also a very good rugby player, I hear. Pretty incredible. George is pretty good at every sport, from my experience, actually. Just one of those people who's got gifted hand-eye coordination (laughs) and speed. So, you know, just to hype you up, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you for having me. It's a very generous introduction. (laughs) It's lovely to have you on, Georgia. So, um, do you want to just start off with telling us what drew you to studying space? Oh, that's a really good question. I think it started... It would have started early high school, I reckon. I always had this fascination, you know, going through primary school, you know, you learn about planets in the solar system and, and that'll be one of the first space-based things that you learn about. But coming into, um, I think it was year eight, we actually started having um, sort of designated portions of our, our, um, our syllabus assigned to like space and all the different objects up there and basic sort of um, gravity concepts and stuff like that. And I think it really just hooked me from the get-go. And when we started to learn about black holes, I was like, you know, damn, that's really cool. (laughs) To me, they're the most fascinating objects in in the universe because, you know, you can't see them and yet they have such a huge impact on everything around them. And I just think that's really incredible. You just mentioned there quickly, Georgia, that you can't see black holes, but like mm. you hear all about them in like movies and things. Yeah. So how do we actually know they exist? So because they are so incredibly dense and the gravitational pull is so extreme, you can see the effects that they have on other objects around them. So one of the coolest pieces of evidence that I've seen for black holes that I really like, and you can YouTube it, it's a, um, a sort of time-lapse video of the stars in the Sagittarius constellation. Our, our black hole is in the constellation of Sagittarius. And you can see this one star sort of getting whipped and slung shot around, seemingly nothing in the middle of the image. And it's really cool to have something so massive and with such an extreme gravitational pull that it can do that to a star. That's pretty cool. 
Yeah, that is a very good description of it because I've often been like, but how do we know? And I'm like, well, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, you can see you can see how they interact <laughs> with the things around them and the behaviour of those things can only be described if you've got something that is so massive and so incredibly like it's so like it just pulls everything in such such an extreme gravitational pull. Yeah. Awesome. So does that mean that every galaxy has a black hole at the centre of it then? Or? Yeah, that's what we that's what we think. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. do we know how they're formed? Like why every galaxy has one? There's a few different theories about how they're formed. Um, and I think one of the most convincing ones, or at least I think at the moment, and certainly what I've read in literature, is that, you know, when the universe started out, there were little, um, you sort of like over time you form these little like clumps and eventually these small clumps form together to form bigger clumps and bigger clumps. And then eventually the um, gravitational attraction that they have is so extreme that they kind of collapse under their own weight and form this sort of like um, mini black hole and then that just continues to grow and then eventually you get stuff being pulled in around in a big plane and that kind of forms the basis of your galaxy. Yeah. But it's not fully understood to be able to understand how these really old objects have formed. You need to be able to be able to see back. In time. Yeah, almost in time. Wow. That's really cool, yeah. Yeah, so... So what is it exactly about black holes and active galactic nuclei that you are studying? So black holes um, and the way that they in interact with their galaxy, they do this really cool thing where they essentially facilitate these big streams of particles to be shot out of a galaxy, up and down, just kind of almost perpendicular to the plane of your galaxy. And these jets, we call them active galactic nuclei jets because a black hole at the centre of your galaxy is kind of the active nucleus of your galaxy. And these big streams of particles, they become quite collimated. It's kind of like water being shot out of a hose. Originally at the start, when that water leaves the hose nozzle, it's quite collimated and it's sort of the flows nice and streamlined. But as it sort of propagates out into space, they become quite puffy. You know, space is full of a whole lot of different things and that interacts with the charged particles in, in your jets in that fluid. And it basically forms this kind of like fountain that's coming out of a galaxy. So, yeah. Do we know why exactly they're spraying matter out into space? Because black holes generally suck things in, don't they? Yeah, so the matter is being shot out of a galaxy before it has a chance to get to a black hole. So, um, again, people aren't really sure exactly the process that's going on, but the general understanding is that the black hole, the black hole's spinning at the centre of the galaxy and all of space is pretty much magnetised. Those magnetic field lines get twisted around that black hole and then par charged particles, space is full of lots of little charged particles, they love magnetic field lines and they like to spiral around them really, really quickly. So as those particles are coming in towards the centre of your galaxy, they interact with these magnetic field lines and they basically get funnelled up and out, straight up, um, almost straight up. And you can sort of see um, when you look at these sources that they're not perfectly straight up, they tend to like process around as well. So you get these jets being shot up at different angles and depending on how far they go depends on how powerful the jet is but it also depends on how much fuel that galaxy has to sustain that flow because they turn off and on a jet won't be active for the whole time um, the whole duration of a galaxy's life it'll it'll go through fluctuations it'll turn off and on it's like someone standing with your hose standing at the tap turning the nozzle off and on but you're not entirely sure the process that is turning it off and on I have a really naive question. Yeah. How do we, like, as, as a scientist, 
How do you observe these things? With a radio telescope. So when we look up into the sky with our eyes, we see only the things that are giving off um, emission in the optical wavelength stuff that our eyes can process. But these charged particles that are contained within these jets give off a different kind of emission. They glow in a different light. They glow in radio frequencies mostly. So you need a radio telescope to be able to see them. Um, and really we've only known about them since radio, um, radio astronomy has become a thing. So we haven't always been able to see them. Yeah, right. So that's just, we did do some episodes in our early days on radio telescopes, but essentially it's like a big cone that picks up the way the emissions that are coming from people, but a radio telescope is quite a long wave, whereas what we can see in the electromagnetic field is actually quite short, or it's just like essentially the cones at the back of our eyes are our telescopes. Um, So is that what you mean? And it's like then you've got to process all of those waves that come through and make sense of that. Yeah, exactly. So you have processing pipelines that take that data and convert it into like visible wavelengths that we can see. Oh, cool. So if you if you Google images of active galactic nuclei, um, you will see these sort of plume-like structures coming out of galaxies, um, and they've just been imaged so that we can we can see them in in the optical wavelengths. They usually come out in like all different shades of red and orange, and yeah, awesome. Okay, that's George has given us an introduction to her PhD and also even gotten me excited about black holes, which is no uh, small feat. Stick with us, and in just a moment, we'll be delving more into George's work on That's What I Call Science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're continuing to talk about space. Today we're joined by Georgia Stewart from the University of Tasmania. I'm Ryan Smith, and as always, our excellent host is Neve Chapman. And so, Georgia, just getting back to your study of uh, these jets of energy bursting out of these active galactic nuclei, you mentioned that your PhD is about that. So what exactly are you studying about these jets? So I'm studying the life cycle of these jets. So as I mentioned before, they have a tendency to turn themselves off and on, or there's another mechanism that will turn them off and back on again. And I'm studying what happens to these big jets, so these big plumes after they've been turned off. So what can you see from essentially just these blobs of like blobs of emission in space? Because it's really easy to tell if one of these structures is active because you can see that streamlined jet structure flowing out and forming this big plume. But if you can't see that jet structure, it's essentially a visual indication that that connects that blob to that one over there. If you can't see that, then how do you know that that blob of emission that you're seeing in the sky is indicative of past jet activity? So we're running computer simulations of these structures with lots of different parameters to try and understand what sort of signatures we can see with the emission that they give off. Are there certain trends in the way they fade and yeah, other sorts of spectral related signatures that we see? Are we talking the composition of these galaxies and also the age of them or are they separated issues? So when we're talking about our, our jets, We sort of talk about them being kind of separate from the galaxy itself. Um, But the age, um, and I'm glad you mentioned that because the age is a big thing 
in order to be able to determine the age of a blob of emission in space, you have to have a pretty detailed understanding of a few different components of it, how the light is behaving and how those particles are fading. And these jets evolve over millions of millions of years and they turn themselves off after millions of years and then you get that blob that's just left there in space existing for another million years. So you can't point your telescope at it and observe it over time. You basically just get a snapshot in time. So how do you recognise that that thing is so old and how long it's been inactive for is a really tough question. And it's a really important question to be able to answer, even though it's hard to find out the answer. It's really important because these jets, because they're so huge, they have such a, a massive impact on their host galaxy, but also the environment around different galaxies in the universe. They heat their environment. They're basically taking a whole lot of energy from the middle of their galaxy and depositing it elsewhere. So you want to know how long that thing has been active for, how long it's turned off for, and then if it restarts again. You want to know kind of the duty cycle. How, how long is it turning over? Because then you can better understand the impact that these things have on their environment. And it helps you understand how galaxies evolve and a whole lot of really cool stuff. So Georgia, depending on what stage of that cycle that jet is at, will its emission or its blob or its wavelength look different so that you can try and pinpoint it? Exactly, yeah. And that's basically what we're trying to do. We're trying to really narrow down the different trends that you see in how in the emission that the blob is giving off, basically. And that we're finding in some of the results from our simulations so far, we're finding that it's very dependent on the environment that you simulate your, your jet in. Is the environment dense? Is it not dense? And how powerful and how quickly your jet is. These things can be propagated out, be sent out of the galaxy at almost the speed of light. But some of them are also sent out at sort of non-relativistic speeds, so it's much slower than the speed of light. So there's a huge variation in, in velocity alone. Some of them can be fat, some of them can be thin, and all these different parameters have a huge impact on how your source evolves. So it's really difficult to kind of pinpoint the trends when you have to take all of those different factors into account. Um, so with these images that we're getting, um, including the James Webb Space Telescope images, what sort of information are you getting out of those in terms of the jets and ageing these things? Yeah, no, that, that's a good question. So the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be really, really cool for studying these objects because we'll be able to see them in a different, like much earlier, um, sort of much earlier time. And that can potentially be really valuable because you're properly getting... You may, be, you may be properly getting these jets really in their infancy if you're seeing them associated with a galaxy that's really, really, um, really, really far in the past and you're seeing that snapshot from such an early time. So it may be really beneficial there to be able to see how these jets are formed and at what point they kind of come into play with the galaxy because you have galaxy forming, but at what point in that galaxy's evolution does it then switch a jet on if it's ever going to? So we don't exactly know how long it takes you know you have your galaxy start to form we don't know how long it takes before that galaxy has enough material built up in the central region to be able to supply matter to a jet structure um, so images and data from the James Webb Space Telescope could be really beneficial for helping us understand that really early stage of their evolution um, yeah 
I have a question about how many known unknowns or knowns that you have in your problem solving because many of us can probably either fondly or like myself not so fondly remember maths in school and you've got x and y need to solve for z or similar that you've got some known things and you've got to find the thing that you don't know but for this it sounds like it's a pretty new frontier or there's lots of different variables and we may not precisely know many of them so how much of that is kind of unknown oh so much so we've only really been studying these structures the last couple of decades and to be able to see especially the the sort of inactive phase of these jets to be able to see that you need really low radio frequency um instruments um telescope arrays that can pick up that really faint emission because when these sort of structures aren't you know the galaxy's not pumping energy, pumping particles into them. They fade really quickly, so they become really sort of diffuse and low emission and just not very bright. So you need to be able to have a telescope that can pick that up. The problem is you're sort of looking up into the sky and you're seeing a blob of emission and you're asking yourself, okay, is that a remnant of jet activity? Theoretically, I know that these few things probably should happen, so I'm going to kind of assess that thing based on what I expect it to do, but they don't always behave as you expect. It's a really big puzzle of exactly how they behave in their in that phase, and we don't fully understand it. So it's, you know, in literature, you always see them being referred to as like candidate remnant sources because no one's actually sure, really, if you look up in the sky and you see this source, this um, source of radio emission, is that um, associated with a jet? We don't really know. If you can't see that jet there you don't know so you've got a couple of theoretical markers which it should have but they don't all have them Mm. so it gets quite tricky to be able to understand what is influencing that um, the sort of emission that you see and how you can sort of disentangle what it's giving you to be able to say yeah no that's definitely an old bit of a jet that's kind of turned off or it's something completely different how would you know if it's Correct. Yeah, that's a good question. So in the ideal sense, it looks the way it theoretically should. So when they kind of, you've got this big blob in space, it should kind of look like a blob. (laughs) It should look like a blob. But basically you're looking at different metrics that you can extract from the emission. And theoretically it should behave a certain way. And if you see that, you can pretty, pretty certainly say, yeah, okay, that's a thing. But they don't all behave. Like as you would that. expect. Yeah, as you would expect. And seeing in the simulations that we're running that, yeah, how how long these things take to fade, what they look like, how big they get is dependent on a whole bunch of different parameters. And it's a difficult task to kind of disentangle that parameter space. Physics is, it, is wild, hey? Is it just a bit of a guessing game then as to when and where you point your telescope as to if you're actually going to find something in the early stages of that jet formation or, you know, in the middle or later on? Yeah, absolutely. And so when they usually find a lot of these images, they usually do what you call like a wide field telescope thing. So they kind of scan the whole sky and you pick up heaps of radio sources and then it's probably some poor unfortunate PhD student's job to kind of sift through everything and, and extract what they want from it from their from their rel- um, for their projects. And so, yeah, it... It can be a bit of a guessing game at first glance when you see them. You can, based on what the 
the emission from the source is doing, you can kind of determine how fast it's moving. And that can, and based on how big it seems to be and how fast it's going, you can get an idea of how long it's taken to get to that point. So that can give you a rough idea of how old that source might be if you see it as an active source. But in its dying phase, when you're literally just seeing a couple of blobs of emission, yeah, it can get quite tricky. And they do some pretty complicated modelling of... Um, the light that you receive to be able to determine, you know, how how much it's sort of faded, how quickly it's kind of faded. And um, you can kind of use that information to get a rough estimate for how long that thing has kind of been there. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much, Georgia. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Stick with us more and we'll be talking about how Tasmania is a uniquely exciting place to be looking at space. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and we're talking with Georgia Stewart from UTAS today about her work on active galactic nuclei. I'm Ryan and as always our amazing host is Neve Chapman. So Georgia, Tasmania's not really often recognised for its astronomy in the mainstream media but you know our knowledge output is pretty phenomenal if I do say so myself. So what would you actually attribute this to? Because we're in a pretty unique location for it, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And because of that, we do get the people that come here to study are experts in their field. And when you sort of look at the small the small scale setup we have in the physics department, like you go through your undergraduate degree and there'll be about five different professors that'll take you through your whole whole undergraduate degree whereas if you go to a bigger university you might see like one professor will take one subject and that's all they teach it's really great in the sense that you have such a small community but there's so much like involvement with the academic staff with the undergraduates and it gets it's really easy to kind of get to know them and find out what they do as well because almost every academic um, in physics at, at UTAS studies something to do with space and it's a great environment for it. We have access to the telescopes, not only here in Tasmania, but also the ones on the mainland. And then um, there's also projects that tee up with different um, different instruments all around the world. So, yeah, maybe we're not recognised in, in mainstream media all the time, but the research output is, is really cool. Only last year, um, one of the postdocs at UTAS had an article published in Nature Astronomy and I think got to be on, like, uh, American Breakfast TV talking about... Um, a sort of a different kind of um, late stage solar system that they'd found, and my supervisor and his um, his previous PhD students and their colleagues won um, this massive supercomputing, like national supercomputing grant, that, which they don't often give to people studying astrophysics. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I think it's another example where Tasmania really punches above its weight because mm. we're resourceful and we still make do with what we have here and carving out our own little niche, but then working really well with others. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that kind of contributed to you wanting to pursue a PhD in Tasmania then? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of it came down to getting to know the lecturers and what they do. I remember in undergraduate, my supervisor's gonna he's gonna um, poke fun at me for saying this, but there's a, a unit in undergraduate which can be quite difficult. They go through a lot of stuff in a short space of time, but you learn a really um, hugely diverse area of science. You learn about 
active galactic nuclei and also atmospheric physics and they cover a lot of different things but it's really cool to be able to see exactly what your lecturers are directly involved in and they come in and they talk about that to you so my supervisor came in and he delivered a couple of weeks in that unit and while it was hard at the time and very sort of abstract to me I was like no this is cool and I think I liked it because it was a challenge because it was quite difficult to understand and it's not every day someone comes into the classroom and kind of completely changes your idea about what's actually up in the sky and what's going on in the universe. You sort of like, wait, hang on, these things exist and I can go and find them. Okay, cool, that's cool. Yeah. You are someone who, um, because we know each other outside of this interview, yeah. that you're quite talented. So you were doing <laughs> art and science and you're also quite gifted at sports. How did you go about trying to just make that decision to pursue a PhD? And I know you're still really active in sport, but um, yeah, it must have been a really tough choice. Yeah, it was. It was a whole lot of different passions and I have this horrible tendency to say yes to everything and just want to kind of get involved in as much as I can but it, it was difficult but I think the physics side was really challenging and I I got a bit kind of self-competitive and I was like <laughs> yeah I'm going to give this a go and so I did an honours year I didn't really know what to do at the end of my um, arts and science degree I was kind of sitting there going yeah okay this honours project has come up um, studying the same sorts of things that I study in my PhD and it's like, yep, that's cool. I can probably do that for a year in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> it's probably, <laughs> yeah, but like, no, it was good. And I did my honours year. And I think after that, I wasn't quite satisfied with the amount that I knew about these things that I studied. And I wanted to go further and kind of challenge myself to to kind of dig a bit deeper. And also just, we, we use supercomputers to run our simulations. And I wanted to know more about how they worked and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Awesome. You got the bug. That's yeah. what honours year is for. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there are a few citizen science projects around the place and there are a lot of space ones. Do, are there any that our listeners could get involved with in your particular field? And yeah, so I think there's a project called Radio Galaxy Zoo out there. Um, I think it's still going. Um, where you can log on and um, basically you get shown a series of images of these different galaxies and, and you're asked to question like to classify them based on like what you think it looks like and you've sort of provided some examples um yeah you can definitely go and get involved in in projects like that so radio galaxy zoo is definitely one to google if you're interested in not only having a look at what these sources actually look like because the very large majority of people like myself like three years ago don't know what they are and didn't know that they existed so it's really cool to be able to see all the different ways that they can look Awesome. Thanks so much, Georgia. It's been really fascinating to touch base and hear how you're going. Oh, no worries. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you for listening. It's been another pleasure bringing you science-related content on That's What I Call Science. Thank you to co-host Ryan Smith for setting up this mini-series all about space. Uh, do follow us on social media so you can check out the extra fun facts that we're sharing as part of this mini-series. Until next time, my name's Neve Chapman. Thank you and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. 
GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.